Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Kentaro Kawamori, co-founder and CEO of Persephone, one of the leading climate management and accounting platforms. I was excited for this one because carbon accounting is such an important and emerging area, and Persephone is one of the leaders. Now, they started in early 2020, so not that long ago, but they've already raised well over $100 million in financing, most recently in a $101 million Series B, led by Prelude and TPG's The Rise Fund. We have a great discussion in this episode about the carbon accounting landscape, what the gaps are, what the opportunities are, what some of the lessons learned are from other companies that have tried and failed in this landscape. And we also talk about why this time is different and Persephone's unique approach. We talk about their entry point and go-to-market, their progress to date, their long vision, and also just Kentaro's general thoughts on how he thinks the market will play out, what the role of policy and regulation is, and most importantly, for anyone listening, how you all can help. Kentaro, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming and honored as well. You said before we started recording that it's your second ever podcast. It is. I'm a podcast noob through and through. Even as a listener, I only really picked up the habit about a year ago and like many have discovered it to be such an amazing format for consuming great information and conversation. So hopefully we can replicate that here. Well, I have no doubt that we will. And I'm excited as well. Carbon accounting is just such a front and center topic. And I know some about it, but I have a lot of questions and it seems like you're a pretty good person to ask those questions to. So I feel like I'm going to learn a lot. Yeah, we've done a thing or two in it, and I'm glad you find it interesting. In the past, when I used the word accounting, especially financial accounting, I somewhat fell asleep a little bit, but carbon accounting is quite exciting and you know, really the cornerstone for 
understanding how we create reduction and you know a multitude of other things in climate tech on the back of it. So super critical software and data components to climate tech solutions at scale. And yeah, looking forward to diving into it. Well, to kick things off, maybe just talk a bit about Persephone and what the company does. We're a SaaS company and we've developed a climate management and accounting platform. And at the core of that is a system of record that helps both operating companies and financial institutions calculate their carbon footprint. And the use cases for that are really two primary ones today. It's for climate disclosures that are being pushed through by regulators around the world, especially financial regulators, like here domestically in the US, the SEC or the Securities and Exchange Commission will be announcing their climate disclosure requirements for public companies and investors in Q1. In the UK, their financial regulator in Japan have already announced their climate disclosure requirements. But then, of course, the other major use case is decarbonization. So if you want to achieve net zero and you want to decarbonize your business, usually systematically, knowing what your carbon footprint is and being able to track that over time is probably a pretty good thing you should be able to do. And how did you find yourself building a carbon accounting software company? What's the origin story of the company? Or maybe even start before that, what's the origin story of you caring about this problem? Yeah, absolutely. Contrary to my name and appearance, I grew up in Germany. My mom is a five foot one blonde lady with blue eyes with a heavy German accent. You can't see me on video, but I look much more Japanese than I do German. And in Germany, as you may or may not know, you know, long been a leader around sustainability. And actually, you know, culturally love to explain this to people. My grandmother grew up during wartime Germany, and what happens is a huge culture of scarcity by necessity growing up in that sort of environment. And so when my mother grew up, her mother, of course, instilled this, this sense of sustainability, which in German culture at the time, really after World War II, was just about scarcity of resource. And so you didn't waste things, you reuse things, whether it was power or food. And so Germany's sustainability culture I think a lot of people don't realize is really shaped by, you know, post-World War II sort of necessity. So even for me growing up in Germany in the 90s, sustainability is just woven into everyday life, you know, whether it's having four different recycling bins and my God, you'll never be as scared as having a German mother and putting a green glass into a brown glass receptacle. The amount of backlash you'll receive from doing that is quite incredible. But that was kind of you know super formative for me in the early years, just growing up in a culture that so values sustainability. And of course, today, Germany continues to be a leader in, in renewable energy generation and those sorts of things. You fast forward, you know, I spent most of my career in enterprise software, and I was a consultant at Accenture, the largest system integrator in the world, and I was doing a lot of work for the energy sector. Was it called Accenture at that time? I'm just trying to date the timeline here. It was, yeah. It was Accenture. This was the it was called Anderson that, Consulting when I was graduating college. <laughs> it had been Accenture for a while when I joined Accenture. But you're right, Anderson Consulting, previously then one of the big four from their accounting days as well. So it's kind of full circle. But yeah, I got a lot of exposure to the energy sector. And so I started working inside oil and gas majors. I started working inside power and utility companies. I got to see the inner workings of nuclear use cases, natural gas. One day found myself consulting for Chesapeake Energy, which at the time was the second largest 
natural gas producer in the country. You may know it if you're a basketball fan. They sponsored the Oklahoma Thunder Arena. Most people hadn't heard of Chesapeake. And I got offered a job as chief digital officer. And I was 27 at the time. And I found myself in a real moral quandary. I said, am I really going to go work for a fracking company? And I really had this moment where I asked myself, you know, why am I having this reaction? So I called up some friends and I said, you know, am I crazy to turn down this job? And many said, you're 27. Somebody's offering you a C-level gig in the Fortune 500. You just go, but why are you having hesitation? I said, well, because of fracking. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to do something that I did back in high school, which was my senior project in high school. I had to go shadow a state senator in the New Mexico State Senate. I graduated high school in Albuquerque. And growing up in Germany, as you might imagine, on the American political spectrum, I don't think the American left spectrum goes as far left as the more social democratic political spectrum in Germany does. Found myself, of course, quite left on the American political spectrum. And I picked the most hardcore conservative Republican in the New Mexico State Senate to shadow because I wanted to understand the other side. And that's where I had this moment of epiphany and I joined Chesapeake Energy because I realized if I'm ever going to do something about sustainability, understanding what the hell this trillion dollar a year industry is all about and how it works is going to be the only way that I can affect change there at scale. And then you fast forward, you know, I'm there, I'm a corporate officer. And so I get exposure into, you know, governance at a public company at a whole different level. You know, you start getting listed as a corporate officer by the SEC. You start seeing things that you don't want to see that you have to be privy to. But importantly, in the quarterly board meetings, I made good friends with our chief risk and compliance officer. This is 2017. And that was the year that BP's shareholder votes, where the shareholders were really pushing BP to provide climate disclosures and make a net zero target was the first time that the shareholders voting for that shareholder resolution had ticked up noticeably. And so we started tracking it as a corporate risk. And then it became clear there was a fundamental shift happening in the capital markets of large institutional investors like BlackRock pushing companies to start disclosing their footprint. And that was when I discovered this massive gap in carbon accounting because I got asked, hey, what would happen if we had to calculate our carbon footprint? I said, why are you asking me? I'm not the EHS person. I'm not a sustainability guy. I said, well, you're always pushing us to do better here. And we have an inkling that this is a data problem. And that's what we found, right? Carbon accounting is largely a data challenge. And because it has been such a niche practice, nobody had invested into building a cloud-based enterprise-grade carbon accounting system. And, you know, more to the story after that, but that was really the genesis of, of why we decided to build this. And, and really our big thesis was it would be the capital markets that would drive companies to disclose this. And of course, that thesis has played out phenomenally with the regulators now pushing down those disclosure requirements. And so when you, when you first entered, I mean, now there's a lot of players that are coming after the carbon accounting problem with software. Did any of that exist? Or what did the landscape look like, not just in terms of software players, but in terms of the visibility that companies had and what tools they were using to see whatever they could see at the time? There had been two previous attempts to do carbon accounting in the market. And the first was sort of in the, the mid to late 90s after the Kyoto Protocol was signed. And that didn't take off. And there was also a severe limitation of software and data capabilities. 
Right? I mean, people didn't even know how to Google back then. Then again, at the end of the 2000s, you know, really on the back of the Obama administration and the push around clean energy transition, there were a couple of companies that attempted to build systems and all of them fell by the wayside. SAP actually bought a company in this space. Most people don't know. So you had one of the largest software companies in the world trying to get into this space in the late 2000s unsuccessfully. And then in the early 2010s, a couple of niche players survived that sort of you know, turbulence, the whole Solyndra debacle and all that stuff. You know, investors started pulling money out of clean tech. And one of the few survivors was a company called Acubio. And so they started building their system in the early 2010s. They actually recently transacted that business to Diligent, which is a, a GRC, governance risk and compliance software company. So some of their challenges were previously operating and having constructed this business to serve a very niche market. So when we started the business in early 2020, there were a handful of other players, all pretty much started within six to 12 months of each other that realized, okay, there's a fundamental shift happening here. And to do this at scale, we're going to need enterprise grade software. And when you looked at some of the companies that had come before, what were the big lessons learned that you thought about as you set out to trying to make this next wave different? The biggest thing we looked at, and I think that broadly the market is still struggling today, is how can one take a pure software business model approach to carbon accounting? Almost every single player in the past and today has a significant consulting component to doing this because the data challenge is so hard. You know, There's been a significant revolution in the modern data stack and cloud-based data systems over the last five years. It's something that most companies don't have expertise or experience in. And so it's a very classic SaaS kind of challenge in the early days is how do you decline consulting opportunities and stay true to developing software? You know, and that's a common refrain that we still see in the market, as well as very rapidly changing reporting and disclosure requirements. And so you know, at the end of the day, this market doesn't exist if companies aren't forced to do it, right? The voluntary disclosure market is very small. You know, expecting companies to do this out of the goodwill of their heart, I think we all know, doesn't create scalable climate markets at scale. I think Chris Saka from Lower Carbon Capital on a recent podcast talked about how the economics of a climate solution have to really mirror the value that the customers are receiving. And in our instance, you know, the buying pattern has, has severely shifted because it's now becoming compliance and CFOs and boards are really focused on buying that. And so I think two things, right? We're seeing that divergence of consulting and a traditional spreadsheet-based sort of consulting approach that's desperately trying to get automated into true software approach. And then we're seeing really unique forces around disclosure, creating buying patterns that didn't exist before. And if you look at the landscape today, both in terms of the software competitive landscape, but also just the broader tool sets or resources that these companies are using, how do you think about it? Like, what does that matrix look like? What's on the x-axis? What's on the y-axis? Like, how do you break it down and make sense of it? And where does Persephone fit? I think of it as a linear sort of progression in the maturity of a climate disclosure or accounting life cycle of a company. And on the far left, you have compliance. And on the far right, you have value creation. So I would say the majority of companies that are looking to do carbon accounting today are doing it because they're on the left side of that spectrum and they just need to comply with the climate disclosure request. Most of the time, those are investors that are threatening their wallets. 
hey, if you don't provide us a climate disclosure, we're not going to give you capital. That's happening to asset managers, it's happening to businesses, portfolio companies, so on and so forth. On the right side, you see pioneers, right? The big kind of marquee companies that we see leading in climate. So I think the Microsofts of the world that are doing amazing things around promoting offset developments. Companies like Allbirds, right, that are creating new ways of entering the public markets. So our team actually helped advise on the sustainable public offering framework that they followed, which is an evolution of the traditional IPO framework. Those companies are on the far right. They're creating value, you know, based and tied to sustainability. Kind of think of that as corollary to like green bond type of evolutions in the marketplaces. All that to say, what we're seeing is I tell people all the time, we're not even in climate software 1.0. So you're going to see a multitude of subcategories of software in the space. I think you're going to see accounting players, you know, accounting is a core part of our platform, but it's not the only part. You're going to see players that specialize in risk modeling, whether it's physical risk modeling or financial risk modeling. You're going to have a continuously expanding and refining consulting solution set in that. So, you know, for example, today, all of the big MBB firms, McKinsey, Bain, and BCG are delivering really broad climate strategies for businesses and boards at scale. You have consulting companies like ERM, which are really specific and, you know, helping develop new methodologies. You have consulting companies like South Pole, which really specialize in creating offset development plans and projects. So we're in the early days, and I think you're going to see, you know, a really tight matrix to your point that's going to define specific players and what they do best, and some that span a couple of those. And where does Persephone fit? You know, our core market is carbon accounting. And I think you're going to see the carbon accounting market look very similar to the financial accounting market. You know, the software markets are so large, you're going to see in financial accounting, you have two primary players at the top, SAP and Oracle, and they dominate financial ERP systems. And then as you go into that middle and SMB layer, you start seeing different companies like Zero and QuickBooks that are really servicing financial accounting for different size organizations. There's some really structural reasons for that. And so I think in our market, you're going to see similar dynamics. You're going to see one to two major winners in the enterprise, and then you're going to see companies specialize in different company sizes. And you'll also see that verticalize over time. We're seeing some of that today. You're going to see you know, specific carbon accounting for not just carbon accounting, but broader ESG reporting by industry. Great example is measurable across the commercial real estate sector. You know, they're kind of the name when it comes to ESG reporting. And how do you think about offsets versus doing the hard work to decarbonize? And similarly, how do you think about serving more purely digital customers versus heavier industry, you know, cement, industrial processes, mining, et cetera? Yeah, you know, I'm frankly really disappointed with what I think is becoming a bit of an echo chamber of, you know, people that are demonizing offsets and kind of lambasting companies for investing in them and purportedly, you know, avoiding the hard work of decarbonizing. I think that's a very unpragmatic view of the world to take, right? I think we have to have high quality science-based sequestration and capture at scale. I think it's ludicrous to expect that policymakers and companies at scale are going to move fast enough to solve this problem. Like we have to have nature-based and science-based solutions that are sequestering carbon to be successful in limiting global warming by 2050. To me, that's that's super clear. And we have to expand the definition of what those offsets mean, right? And so there's 
there's criticism around things in the offset markets around, you know, direct air capture technologies not being economically viable at scale today, about even forestry projects, you know, being hard to verify. And all of those are legitimate. You know, direct air capture is not economically viable today, but it has to start somewhere. We need continued investment into it for those for those unit economic costs to continue coming down. And we have to have high quality engineered sequestration that can put carbon in the ground for tens of thousands of years versus just planting trees everywhere, which is a critical part of the solution, to be clear, but comes with some severe downsides and limited sequestration capabilities. You know, it's we just need to follow the science. We say follow the science all the time when it comes to believing and solving around climate change. But some people that use that same moniker tend to forget that also should apply to offsets. As it applies to our business, we help our customers today track offsets. We're actually partnered with Patch and help you know promote offset purchases. You know, our stance is for us, we don't think it's a, an acceptable position to be an accounting provider and profiting off of selling offsets. We don't want to be a broker. We also think there's a huge problem with brokers broadly in the marketplace taking too much money away from projects. And in fact, just yesterday I spoke with the Financial Times about this. There's the amount of fraud and graft that we're going to see related to offsets and that supply and demand imbalance is going to be crazy. But for us, we don't want to ever profit from selling offsets. We want to be able to take the user base that we have and promote investment into offset projects at scale. And Patch helps us do that. Patch, of course, has to still run a business. So they take a small margin, but it's a very acceptable margin in our opinion Versus, you know, some of the the more traditional brokers that are kind of making a crazy amount of profit off of it. And then as it pertains to industry, you know, decarbonization is not possible without decarbonizing heavy industry. You know, cement, agriculture, oil and gas, utilities, you know, all we have to do is look at the numbers. Focusing decarbonization efforts on the highest emissions companies is super critical and so today, you know, we work on both sides of that, and that's been really critical for us. We work within those high emissions environments, but also with those that are financing them. Because if you're not working with the people that are financing those activities, whether it's through lending activities in the banking sector, or whether it's through direct equity investments, there's going to be a real gap there because the people with the most influence in that decarbonization journey today, in our opinion, are financial institutions that are really threatening you know, the equity value of those businesses and really threatening boards like we saw at Exxon, you know, these people are at threat of losing their jobs, whether it's the CEO or the board directors. That's a super powerful thing. And you mentioned that one of the things that makes you different is that you've avoided heavy consulting engagements and really tried sticking strictly to SaaS, given that, as you said, we're not even in climate tech 1.0 and given how many gaps there are and how different it is from industry to industry and the expertise that's required that often doesn't exist in these companies. How have you done that? What makes that possible? And why is it possible for you where so many others have struggled? I think that's the power of software, right? Is the ability to codify knowledge into a readily accessible on-demand sort of format. And really what we've done is taken an approach similar to what you've seen other companies that have radically simplified highly technical areas into much more approachable ways. I think a great example is what Intuit did with tax filings. So think about the IRS tax codes. You know, if you're if you're international, the IRS is the 
Internal Revenue Service, the federal agency that's responsible for collecting taxes in the U.S., and there's 5,000 pages in the U.S. tax code. You and I are never, ever going to go read maybe even a single page of that tax code. We just want to go into a piece of software, tell it how much money we made, and with confidence and trust, have that software tell us how much money we owe the federal government. We don't want to pay it a single dollar more, and we don't want to pay a single dollar less because there's downsides to doing both. And so we took a similar approach to that. We're actually releasing a whole freemium version of the platform. We're going to make the entirety of scope one through three carbon accounting available for free in the market. Really a new mission we're adopting is democratizing carbon accounting because we've been able to figure out how to introduce the concept of materiality, which is really answering the three biggest questions that companies have in calculating their footprint, which is what is my footprint today? How do I calculate it? Number two. And what parts of it are most relevant for me? And what you'll find is in scope three emissions, especially the Pareto principle applies almost every time. The Pareto principle being 80% of the emissions are going to come from 20% of the activities the majority of time. And so we've been able to do two things. We created some really specific IP that allows us to do calculations of all types across the entire carbon accounting framework, which is called the greenhouse gas protocol in a singular workflow, a singular system of record. And we've been able to codify the materiality piece, which traditionally consultants have been filling. That really answers the what's material to my business and then how do I go calculate it? And so, you know, for us, it's that's taken, you know, upwards of $20 million in capital investment today. It's getting access to those world-class experts, distilling that information, putting it into software. It's still early days. You know, we're We're excited about what we've been able to build so far, but there's still a lot of opportunity ahead. And in terms of timelines, so when did the company get started? When did you initially launch the product to market? How did you launch it? What kinds of initial customers did you target? And what was the sales model? And maybe talk a bit about where you're at today and how that's been evolving as well. And I I love that with you, I I can rattle off these questions and then you'll kind of structure them and stage them in your head. I don't know how you keep track of it because I, I dump a lot out there at once, but you can you can take it. I would get confused, but you, you don't seem to have an issue with it. <laughs> That's kind of the devil in the details in software. You have to become really good at distilling technical concepts in a way that others can consume. So others have told me that's a superpower of mine, so I'm glad it's resonating. So we started the company January 10th, 2020, and we're almost two years into the journey now you know, a couple of weeks away at this point. We raised a few million bucks in seed capital at that time. So Jason Offerman, who's one of our co-founders and CEO and I, were early stage investors with a private equity from the East Coast who really led our seed round at that point. They eventually would go on to lead our Series A as well. So we had a really high, high degree of trust in our initial investors, which allowed us to move at speed really quickly. We raised the rest of our seed round, which was $5 million through August of 2020. And that's really when we brought the company out of stealth as well. Really just start testing demand on kind of the way we were positioning the company and were very quickly overwhelmed. An unbelievable amount of companies came in and said, how soon can I buy this? It reminded us of that, if you've seen that meme from Fry and Futurama, if you're a fan of that show, waving the wad of cash and saying, please take my money and shut up. If only it were so easy, we still had a lot of product to build. So we that allowed us to really expand the amount of kind of initial alpha customers, even at that point, it wasn't even quite a beta. 
And that included private equity firms. It included manufacturers through the end of the year. And we really brought our product into Alpha in January of this year. Actually, our very first client was TPG, which is third or fourth largest private equity firm in the world. Actually, just today announced that they're going to IPO and has 316 portfolio companies. And they were, they've been ahead on ESG for quite some time. And they really helped us pioneer this approach to finance emissions calculations around this new methodology called the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials, which was developed by some of the large global banks like Morgan Stanley and some of the other big Dutch banks. And we brought that capability into the market, into a broader beta in summer of 2021. And in a very short amount of time, we're working now with three out of the top 10 global banks. One of them also became an investor in our B round. And I think that's about to be five of the top 10 global banks. We're working with five of the top 10 global private equity firms. That's about to be seven. And so we really carved a quick lead in the financial services sector, especially with asset managers. So you're going to see some exciting things coming out on that front for us. Then 2020. Two is really the big push for us around the corporate space. And then from, uh, I guess, to wrap up, to go back through my mental checklist, as you mentioned, we raised our Series A in, it was April of this year. And then our Series B in quick succession to that, when we had a chance to preempt the round at the time with Prelude Ventures and TPG, and that was 101 million there. So we've raised about 120 million to date. And that's enabled us to invest really aggressively into R&D first and foremost and continuing to innovate on the product side. And today are about 160 people and we'll be on our way to, to being about 250 by the first or second quarter of next year. And is, is it a direct sales model inside, outside? How are you actually taking this to market? It's a combination of direct sales, so classic you know, B2B SaaS type of sales motion, but also a significant partner channel already. So globally, we go to market with Bain & Company, especially in the private equity space. They also came in as an investor of ours in the Series B. We're going to market through some really non-traditional channels. Here's a, an interesting bit of insight. When a company needs to disclose its carbon, it's almost always the CFO that calls us because it's an investor or a regulator that's called them. And the CFO tends to call one of three people for advice, their banker, their tax advisor, and their lawyers. And so some of our routes to market includes the banks. So you know, global, big global banks are not just customers of ours. They're also channels because their customers are asking them for advice on what they should use. The private equity firms that are customers of ours have an enormous amount of portfolio companies that are asking them what platform they should use. So TPG, for example, like we mentioned, 316 portfolio companies, a massive, massive portfolio of operating companies that are looking for help. And so those are interesting channels for us that are non-traditional, but also very traditional, you know, system integrators in Japan and in Canada and a huge, as much demand as we're seeing on the customer side, we see as much demand on the partner side as well to build businesses around the platform. And then what's the pitch to these companies and, and how much does it vary from sector to sector, industry to industry? Our pitch is very simple and very focused. It's disclosure readiness. And, you know, we really operate by the maximum of sunlight being the best disinfectant, right? We found, and we very purposely eschewed building decarbonization recommendations into the platform because unless you have a large data set and can make those 
decarbonization recommendations very specific to that business, they tend to be very little value and a very low quality. You know, you, you see dashboards out there that tell companies the percentage of renewable energy that they're using or how much, you know, fuel versus electric vehicles they're using. It's not very useful to buy software for that today, frankly. CEOs and CFOs ask me all the time how to decarbonize. And I say, I'll let you in on a little secret. You don't need to pay McKinsey a million dollars for your climate strategy. I can tell you in three simple ways how to reduce your footprint. The first is use less power. The second is use greener power. And the third is buy greener services and products. Number one and two are directly in your control right now. Number three, you can only do so much. You can push your suppliers to start greening their supply chains. You can buy selective green products, but that's a process that's going to take longer and over time. So to start, you really should get your enterprise capability in order to understand where your footprint is coming from. It's the most overused phrase in our space that you can't improve what you can't measure, but it holds true every time. If you don't invest the time into the capability of being able to account for your carbon, you're almost certainly not going to be successful in reducing it ultimately. And when it comes to accuracy, one of the knocks I've heard on carbon accounting is just that so much of the data is self-reported and that companies aren't necessarily incentivized to tell the truth. How do you handle that? And also, how much does your job differ as a company or as a product from sector to sector? Yeah, another set of great questions. You know, two primary components to the accuracy around carbon accounting. And the first is the calculation methods. And it's it's one that most people don't understand. And so the greenhouse gas protocol is literally designed to accommodate for these wide range of industry and data scenarios. So a great example is air travel. You know, I just spoke, you haven't taken a flight since since COVID has gone down. I've been on a few. And there's three ways, according to carbon accounting methodologies, that you can calculate the carbon footprint of air travel. The first is called a spend-based methodology. You tell me how much money you spent on that flight from Boston to London, and I can give you an approximate carbon footprint calculation on that. By nature, it's going to be high level, and it's going to be not very accurate. The second methodology would be a distance-based. So if I have data that tells me you flew from Boston to London Heathrow, Maybe that's from a concur system. Maybe it's from an accounting system. Now I can give you a distance-based calculation that's more accurate. The third is a fuel-based calculation. So if I know exactly how much jet fuel that 747 burned getting you from point A to point B, I can give you a very accurate calculation because there's emission factors that tell us the carbon intensity of jet fuel for US-based flights. That's where that problem comes in, right? Is you're almost certainly not going to get the data from American Airlines that tells you exactly how much fuel they burned going from point A to point B, but you can probably get spend or distance-based calculations. And you know, one of the, the important things to remember about all carbon accounting, all carbon accounting is an estimation. The only way you can get 100% accurate emissions data is to put a physical sensor on something. And that's not economically viable. And that's usually reserved for very specific industrial applications, you know, things like methane leaks on oil and gas wells and those sorts of things. And so there's a there's a huge sort of technical barrier of entry to understanding how carbon accounting works. And yeah, that's tough. How do you explain that to people? Should people necessarily care about that? Who knows? The other part of it you pointed out is assurance and audit. I had one CFO tell me he predicts that 
we're going to see the greatest transfer of wealth from 401ks and pension plans into the big four since Sarbanes-Oxley. And what he means is the big four are about to have a massive boon doing assurance and audit work on carbon disclosures and climate disclosures for companies all over the world. Because what's going to happen is the SEC is going to put out their disclosure mandates in Q1. And by the way, if you haven't seen it yet, Chairman Gensler has made an absolutely brilliant move. And as soon as the SEC mandates that they have to disclose it, remember in the US, corporate officers are liable for everything they put out as a public company. They are personally liable. They have to sign every disclosure that goes out. Now what's going to happen is no CEO or CFO or board is going to allow climate disclosures to go out without a big four or a similar auditor assuring that that methodology was correct because they don't want to get sued, especially because of precedents at Shell and Exxon of their company making misstatements about their carbon footprint. You're going to see a whole bunch of time and money spent on assurance and audit. One of the ways that we've approached that is right now we're the only ones in the market that are fully transparent on that. So when you use our platform, you know exactly what calculation was used know exactly what data was used, know exactly where it came from. It's literally audit trails in our ledger system, very similar to think of it like a journal of entry in financial accounting. And so we've gone through multiple assurance audits with our customers. They're saving upwards of 50 to 75% of the time they would usually spend on assurance and audit because they have it all in one central system now. You mentioned that voluntary can only take us so far. You also mentioned that these SEC rules are coming in Q1. In order to switch from voluntary to like this disclosure readiness mode, is it just assumed that the time has come or is it still wait and see? Is there policy risk in terms of you know what the government does in the future and how that might affect it switching from voluntary? Like where are we? And let's take the US. Where are we in the US in terms of moving beyond voluntary definitively? The brilliance that Chairman Gensler was, uh, that I was alluding to, he just made these comments in a public forum a couple of days ago. He said that if public companies are making statements and ambitions around achieving net zero, then technically they have already signed up to a mechanism that they should be held accountable to, to their shareholders. And so other financial regulators have really battled with the question of what scope disclosure do we require? So for example, in the UK, only scope one and scope two are required. In the EU, there's a huge political battle around should we require scope one and scope two and also three, largely because chambers of business and chambers of commerce are lobbying pretty hard against it because there's a cost associated to that reporting. And Chairman Gensler made the move and said, well, if you've already committed to going carbon neutral, then you've already made a public commitment disclosure that you owe reporting to your investors to. And so the current version looks like the extent that companies in the US are going to have to disclose full scope one through three will be to the extent that they've already made those commitments. And so if you if you make a commitment and say, you know, we're going to get net zero to according to our scope one and two only, then it looks like you'll just be subject to that. It's interesting. I actually wrote in NASDAQ about on this topic over a year ago. You know, my prediction was that it would be financial regulators and not legislatures that would push these disclosure requirements. In every major global financial market, we've seen that, except in the EU. In the EU, they've just announced yet another delay that the EU disclosure requirements are not going to come out until 2023 now. And that's largely because it's become 
political jockeying to some degree versus in the US, UK, and Japan, it's become an investor issue and a disclosure issue for financial regulators. It seems directionally like there's two different ways to go. There's kind of the general purpose dash that looks across everything in an enterprise. And then there's very specific point solutions, whether it be, I mean, you mentioned some of them around compliance, around risk, around value creation, around ingredient sourcing, around supply chain, around procurement, or different things. But how do you think about the landscape as it relates to, you know, will there be winners in each category? Will it ultimately consolidate? And if it does consolidate, is it better to start general or start focused? Yeah, I think there's there's two answers to that. There's a market answer and a technology answer. It's very difficult to go from being a vertical niche player to a general player. It's much easier to go from a general platform to then adding specific vertical and niche use cases on top of that from a purely software perspective. And so, you know, a great example is SAP. SAP, you know, is worth hundreds of billions of dollars. They are the financial backbone of almost every major manufacturing and industrial company in the world. And if you look at their acquisition portfolio over the last 20 years, you know, they added Concur for expense management. They added Ariba for supplier management in the supply chain. They added success factors for HR management. And all of them share this common platform in the middle, which is the financial accounting and ERP data. You're going to see this very similar thing for us. There's a huge amount of gravity for the carbon footprint number because it's so key to unlocking all of these other software use cases in our space. It's the same exact thesis for Salesforce, right? Salesforce and Mark Benioff came out and said, if we can build the best system for managing and capturing the customer record, the CRM, then you can layer in all of these other capabilities around that. And Salesforce has spent tens of billions of dollars on acquisitions ranging from Slack most recently to Tableau to MuleSoft. And that's because they can build this entire ecosystem around the customer record and the customer data. You're going to see that same thing happen in our space. And so my prediction is, and where we're very focused on our business, is we want to create the ERP type layer that makes the ingestion of activity data, turning that into verifiable, assurable, and trustworthy carbon footprint calculations and numbers to enable all of these other ecosystems. So I think at scale, you end up actually seeing platform business models where other companies may actually build applications and use cases on top of that platform, just like they do on Salesforce and in Slack and others. Now, when you're selling into these companies, is it a CEO sale? Is it a CFO sale? And since I'm allowed with you to ask questions in pairs, I'm also going to ask a follow-up as part of this question, which is what do you think about the VP of sustainability title and where does that function fit into this decision process? I mentioned it earlier, our number one buyer absolutely is the CFO and the CFO office because almost always their buying activity is precipitated by some disclosure requests, heavily dominated by investors and then secondarily by regulators. And almost always the investor relations and reporting function falls to the CFO, hence the buying activity coming from there. It's also important to remember that the overwhelming majority of companies do not have a sustainability function. Right? Like we in our world, we talk about chief sustainability officers and VPs of sustainability a lot, but the reality is that role exists in a very small percentage of companies globally. And so sustainability tends to be a part-time activity for, sometimes we see 
employee resource groups owning this. Sometimes we just see passionate employees owning it. But as soon as you make it an investor reporting requirement, that's where we sell, right? And that's where we don't have to sell. Our platform is a painkiller versus a vitamin, if you've ever heard that analogy in software, in that we don't have to go convince people to go take their vitamins. They just come to us and say, we've got this disclosure requirement and we need to go meet this. Sustainability teams, sadly, we see struggling, right? We still see most companies talking a whole lot more game than putting action out there. And sustainability teams at scale are struggling with budget and relevance in the business. Increasing, of course, as you would expect, but also, sadly, we see most sustainability professionals having a clear lack of understanding how to build business cases internally. You know, how do you quantify that they should invest into a piece of software or that they should hire these expensive consultants to go do this, especially because these CEOs and boards are making these commitments that don't have to be fulfilled by 2050. They say, well, you know, I'm really focused on supply chain issues caused by COVID. I'm focused on fixing the balance sheet. Right. The reality is, regardless of what most companies are saying, you know, pragmatically, most companies are going to continue to invest and spend the way that their investors, especially in the public markets, expect them to. And so we see sustainability teams certainly increasing in their influence and their relevance, but we do still broadly see them struggling to be able to spend at scale. How much do you interact with the big consulting firms that are doing the consulting work in this area? And what is that relationship like? How do they think about what you're doing? On a daily basis, you know, every single one of the big four, every single one of the strategy firms, and that's from a combination of partnerships, a combination of they're active in our customers, right? So we have to work with them and play nice. And then the other day, one of them called me up and said, hey, we'd like to buy you. And I laughed and I said, you have no track record of buying software companies. This makes absolutely no sense for you or us. Thanks, but no thanks. And really, you know, we mostly are seeing a shift and it really depends on the type of consultants. In the advisory space, they're realizing if I'm going to go out and create climate strategies and tell my customers what they should go do to decarbonize, but I can't answer the basic question of what their carbon footprint is, that's just a tiny problem, right? That would be like bringing in a consultant to say, hey, help build us a new revenue plan or how we can increase sales. Yeah, I don't need to know what your sales are. Don't worry about it. I'm just going to tell you that you're going to, you're going to achieve $2 billion in sales next year. You know, People are bringing consultants in literally on that premise. They're saying, we're going to get to this result, but I have no basis of, of where you're at today of performance or baseline. And so baselining is, is a frequent refrain and phrase you start hearing from consultants. But then system integrators, for example, so think the Accentures of the world, the IBMs of the world, they see a massive data opportunity around this, right? They're hungry to build, to build practices that are going to deliver services to automate this type of reporting in the future. And then, you know, other consultants that are sort of more broader ESG or, you know, offset specific, you know, definitely are seeing the needs to having higher quality data centric digital type delivery models. And so we see a lot of pull from those types of consulting partners as well. And you talked about how long the company's been around and the traction from a fundraising standpoint, to the extent you're comfortable sharing anything you can share as it relates to customer traction, revenue traction, any, anything about the actual operating momentum and progress? For sure. Yeah. You know, single digit millions today in ARR, you're going to see the company, you know, on a very fast growth trajectory. We think in the low tens of millions of ARR next year, 
Those are projections, right? A lot can happen in the market, both to the upside and to the negative. So there, you know, there's certainly a lot of variability in that in this early stage of a market. We expect by the end of Q1, our customer count will be in the several hundred based on current pipeline and the conversions we're going through now. And ending next year, especially around the back of our freemium strategy, we expect we could be we could be in the several thousand customer counts, you know, when we're talking about user organizations that'll take advantage of the the freemium model as well. And when you think about the path to making that aggressive growth happen, we've talked about some of the things that are within your control that you're planning to focus on and how you are anticipating that, at least from a Persephone standpoint, you'll control what you can control. What about the things that are outside of the scope of your control that are either blockers or frustration points or opportunities where if someone fixed them, you could move a lot faster? I mean, there's this little this little devil out there, COVID, right, that is becoming continuously restrictive. We Two of our most important markets that we're investing into aggressively are the UK and Japan. And, you know, Japan just shut down again because of Omicron. London, we were there three weeks ago on the back of COP26. And now it's a virtual certainty that the country is going to shut back down on the back of the breaking records yet again today. So COVID continues to be a challenge. It was a distinct advantage in the early days, frankly, to not have to meet everybody in person. But you know, the power of being able to connect with people in person, whether it's new teammates that we've just brought on or whether it's customers, those can accelerate learning and innovation at a pace that you just can't do fully remote. And so that will continue to be an inhibitor. The EU postponing yet again their disclosure requirement is frankly devastating for potential climate progress at scale, right? I mean, we need the EU. It's the second largest economy in the world to really move and some of their challenges is that the EU always seeks consensus across the block. It's not like here in the US where as long as we have a 51% majority, we're happy to shove it down the throat of the other 49%. In the EU, they really want consensus across everything. And that and that's a that's a barrier to progress at scale. And then like any software business, you know, you have your classic sort of risk factors of it's a very aggressive talent market out there. The labor rates are rising drastically. There's a huge shortage of software engineers and cybersecurity professionals. So there's just there's also just very software industry dynamics, which are risk factors that we're of course have to always consider and are, are building contingencies and hedges around. Uh-huh. And Kentaro, for anyone listening to the show that that wants to be helpful or that's inspired by what you're doing, where do you need help and who do you want to hear from? Massive shortage of technology professionals around software and data literacy in climate tech broadly. You know, so much investment in climate tech goes into hard sciences. So there's an amazing number of engineers across physical disciplines, you know, weather disciplines that are coming into the space. But the amount of professionals that are coming into the space, you know, coming from SaaS, coming from data centric companies is far from where we need it to be. That's everywhere. It has to be such a critical part of the solution. The new PwC climate investing report just dropped yesterday. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, but there was some really good news and some really bad news coming out of that. The really good news was that investments into climate broadly went up drastically. The bad news is the number of companies that got invested into was completely flat. And that means there aren't more software and data professionals coming in this year than there were a year ago because there aren't more software and data companies to go to. Now, you know, the ones that are there were growing across the board successfully, but 
we need hundreds of thousands and millions of professionals in this space to really accelerate the scale. And so, you know, if you're coming from large scale enterprise SaaS and you're working at Facebook and you're helping, you know, underage teenage girls at this point, you know, be exposed to things that they shouldn't be, maybe take a look at what you're doing and see if you can apply your talents to climate instead. And anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners beyond what you just said, which would be a perfectly good place to end on, honestly. Of course. I mean, taking a little dig at Facebook. Sorry, Meta, of course. We have to make sure we're using the proper name. You know, I think I'm really, really big fan. I've heard others sign off on this. You know, the corporate sector has to move. Everybody knows that. The corporate sector systemically is going to be a major part of the solution. And if you're listening and you're working at a large company, you have absolutely nothing to do with climate, but you're listening to this podcast, it means your interest has peaked. It means you're passionate about this space potentially. Go ring this bell in your company. Go force your executive teams and their shareholders to make movements around this. You know, we saw this at Amazon, a small group of Amazonians for climate eventually were a really influential part that caused Jeff Bezos to move Amazon to make climate commitments and to put $10 billion into a climate fund. Use your voice. You've been granted it. It's a privilege. Speak up and use it. And if you can do that in your corporate sector, in your company, you can have a, an outsized amount of influence. Awesome. Well, I'm so fired up after this discussion. You've gotten me energized. <laughs> Kentaro, really great discussion. We covered a lot of ground. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and super excited to see what you and the whole Persephone team do in the future. Best of luck. Thanks for having me. And thanks for everything you guys are doing at MCJ as well. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.